So thank you for joining us, Justin. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. Always uh, always good to have some conversation with somebody that's in the field and has been for mm-hmm. quite a while. So thank you for joining us. Oh, uh, sure. Anytime. I never miss a recovery podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. So actually, today's podcast is about recovery. I know uh, Maureen and I were chatting earlier um, about this article that we saw. I believe this was the uh, Cape Cod Times um, written by Jeannie Yarot. Y-A-R-O-C-H. I don't want to say I pronounced it wrong. At least I spelled it out for her. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was definitely uh, an article about uh, recovery being contagious, which I just thought was uh, William White put that phrase in there, and I, I thought that was just a really good a really good way to look at it. He said, you know, addiction is contagious um, as well, um, but it is transacted. Where has he got this here? Um, he said, uh, recovery is contagious, but while addiction takes hold through passivity and neglect, recovery spreads through conscious intention uh, which i thought was mm. really uh it was really intense you know that there's this idea that you know the addiction is spread through all of these other behaviors and lifestyle uh, uh issues and that you know recovery requires something else but it's also contagious and um i think that's a really good topic for us to to pick up on today yeah is that will white from summit achievement or a different I, william white it's, it's different william white uh, okay it's yeah, uh, it's it's the William White as far as I yeah. know. I didn't know yeah, there was yeah. another one. So <laughs> the only one I guess I'm aware probably of. probably a lot of them out there, but there <laughs> well, he's the real deal, William White. Mm-hmm. Will Will White at Summit Achievement is a legend in the field. He's like the godfather of wilderness therapy. This could be the same gentleman. Yeah. He's a renowned Great recovery guy. scholar, an author, an advocate. Um, he okay. definitely has a lot of papers written, and uh, I think he's got the uh, he helped with the dictionary. Um, and put a lot of input into the uh, recovery coaching out here in Massachusetts as well. So, oh, great! Yep. So yeah, this I like, uh, was that? I like that whole. I like that whole idea of, of of recovery is contagious. I mean, and I think that that could mean a lot of things. But I know that I always talk about the fact that we we keep talking about the death toll. You know, like uh, as if we can scare people to recovery. Mm. And I think that it really needs to be just the opposite. We need to be um, talking about recovery because people recover. And um, offering that, that ability to join together and do positive things and think in a positive way. Mm. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the beyond beyond recovery, you know, I mean, it's it's beyond the initial stages of uh, abstinence, you know, getting out of detox or getting getting off of whatever it is that you're doing. The the idea of recovery being contagious, it's almost like it's it's inviting. You know, if other people are doing it around you and it becomes normal, you normalize this this new way of life. It's contagious. You want it, you know. I can speak to that in, in my experience. Um, I was sharing my story last night with some young gentlemen who are earlier earlier in their journey than I and reflecting on my early days. Like, I saw therapists. They helped me. You know, they helped me get ready. Coming to a 12-step fellowship and getting around other young people who were positive on recovery and sobriety, doing fun things and taking care of their life. And that was the single biggest inspiration for me. Um, you know, I've worked the 12 steps backwards and forwards and had a great experience with it. But in my lived experience, it's that recovery community and getting around people um, and the contagiousness of that, that really was like okay this is something i must have well i remember the i remember the first time i decided that i wanted to get well it was because i mm-hmm. saw a friend of mine who was doing well somebody that i had used with in the past and even you know sold and done drugs with for years and yep. i saw him sober i saw him happy i saw him he had a real smile on his face he was living a different kind of life and i wanted that and i was like that i like that you know and it was it yeah. it, it drove me it inspired me um to at least start the fight you know yeah. I mean, that's why peer support is so important. And we need more and more avenues for people to access peer support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you can't get well in a vacuum. Um, you nope. know, it's hard. It's hard to get well. Like if you go to treatment and then you come back from treatment and you just pop yourself into your family's house or, you know, uh, where every, where nobody else is in recovery, it feels abnormal. It doesn't feel uh, uh, like what everyone else is doing, you know, everybody else is just not doing drugs and being normal. And there you are struggling with all these feelings, trying to get mm-hmm. well, trying to recover. And it, you need that peer support. You need other people, um, to help build up that, 
that uh, uh, sense of recovery inside of you. No doubt. Yeah. I think we're starting to see more of that, though. There's, I mean, I know that I was involved last year in Recovery Fest. It was a, it was a day long festival in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, where we had um, music all day. We had Macklemore there and Fits in the Tantrums, and the whole. It was a sober event. So I think we're starting to see more of the event style, you know, and and uh, you have the Phoenix, the gyms that are so are sober, um, sober um, work working. I guess anybody that's had what is it at least forty eight hours of sobriety can go for free. We have another one down in um, on the Cape called Wellstrong, mm. I believe. And, um, that's another gym where anybody can go free of charge. So um, I think we're seeing more of that. Yeah, I think it's starting to grow. I, I think those types of things need to grow in prevalence outside of AA and NA for, for the kind of the next generation, that those being the default peer support networks, I think they'll always be a place. I've benefited from them tremendously, but mm. I think we need some peer support outside of church basements to become as prevalent as AA and NA have been in the past 20 or 30 years to really to really make recovery as contagious as it could be. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the you know, another part of this article, I love to keep referring to it because it was pretty insightful. It says, you know, because uh, another piece of truth about recovery that needs to be told, people in recovery are strong, creative, compassionate, resourceful, and talented. They, like all of us, deserve and desire to be self-directed and of service to others. Through their recovery, they restore not only themselves, but also our community. They become wage earners, taxpayers, volunteers, voters, and neighbors. And, you know, I mean, uh, aside from that, it's like they're, they're coming back into the community and the, the support can't, like you just said, be in a church basement. You know what I mean? Right. It can't be three days a week at this community center. It's the community. These are community members. You know, there's a percentage yeah. of people who are coming back and actually, you know, opening businesses, working at your, your local restaurants and stores. And, you know, uh, they're, they're a part of the community. So that support, that peer support you know, it almost needs to transcend the, the, the recovery part of it. And just as community members supporting each other through an illness back in, you know, back into their life, back into the community, the neighborhood, whatever it might be. I think those are the conversations I want to see people talking more openly about it. Peer support, not just being other people mm-hmm. recovering, but like everyone in my community, you know, hey, I was off. I got sick. I'm back. Um, that would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, definitely growing. I mean, I'm. I'm known around here in Milton for recovering out loud, yeah. and some some of my friends kind of joke with me a lot about it that I recover out very loud, and um, <laughs> you know I'm into it. And That's I went and thing. saw Eliza Dushku speak not too long ago. She's an out loud recoverer with a much larger reach than I, and I hung around like a like a, a shameless fan because I wanted to say hello to her and just thank her for, for the loudness of her recovery and her willingness with her visibility to step out. Um, and, and that type of stuff can only help, you know, more and more advocates who are well thought of and, and you know, who are visible saying, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I'm in recovery and it's cool being in recovery school. It is. I've actually seen some uh, some sober groups. You know, there's like some sober bars and stuff out in New York City that are picking up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, ah. we've, we've talked about this in one of our previous podcasts yeah. that you know there's there's these communities breaking out where they're going out and having fun and doing stuff uh, that they wouldn't normally have done and are creating a little subculture, which I love. Wouldn't this be interesting if this changed like the whole consciousness around uh, um, the necessity to drink or and or do drugs at events? instead of it being the norm mm. it was stopping the norm because i know my daughter's planning her wedding and one of her big concerns is should we have alcohol or not it's like well you don't drink and a lot of your friends don't drink why do we have to have alcohol at the wedding mm. so and it's just such a like, you know i'm sure people go to these events and they expect that there be alcohol there but why is that why is that the norm why i mean what does alcohol have anything to do with the wedding <laughs> so um I just think that maybe everybody's got to change the way they think a little bit, too. And um, that wouldn't be a bad thing. Well, I saw a quote yeah. by uh, Robin Williams this morning. that said, if you need drugs and alcohol to live life, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> 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 Which I thought was or to enjoy life, I believe, is the quote. Yeah, I would hope that at your daughter's wedding, 
pretty much anyone who's there could be supportive of an alcohol-free environment. Um, I struggled this with with this with my own wedding, and I we did have we did have alcohol because my family likes to drink and they're normal drinkers, and I'm okay being around it. Um, but I, I agree with kind of the default mode of. Oh, it's a wedding. There, there must be an open bar because, mm. you know, Uncle Johnny expects to be able to get wasted at the wedding. I mean, it's kind of, it's a little silly, and and not in many social contexts. I remember talking to a friend about this back in my pre-sober days of just getting together with other friends for dinners. The the necessity and expectation of showing up with your bottle of wine or whatever. And it's just, it's just crazy how mm-hmm. we're programmed that way. Or, you know, dating, any social activities. Hey, you want to mm-hmm. go out? <clears throat> so the question is, Hey, do you want to go out and do what? Do you want to go out and get a drink? Do you want to go grab something to eat and have a drink? Uh, do you want to meet for a drink? Uh, and it just mm-hmm. becomes, it's, it's kind of like with the, you know, with teenagers and how we talk about in high school, marijuana is a great social lubricant. It's that thing that allows them to have social interaction when they have no real social skills yet. It's like, oh, you smoke? I smoke. We all smoke. Let's get together and smoke. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's immediate connection, even though you haven't used any social social tools to connect. And, um, you know, I think adults, that's the adult version is alcohol. You know, hey, let's yeah. go grab a drink and sit down and talk. And, you know, alcohol then becomes a social lubricant that allows people to be comfortable with each other. Uh, it's the it's that default social setting uh, for, for dating and events and stuff. Like we just had a fundraiser for, for Bay State and. You know, the question always comes up, are we going to have alcohol there because we deal with the, uh, you know, the community that we deal with? And it's like, mm-hmm. well, I mean, why not? I think a lot of people expect it. So we end up doing it. It doesn't affect the event at all. But I think it's sad that we have to just assume people are going to want to drink if they show up. Uh, it, 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 I don't know. I don't know how to change that. How do you change that social <laughs> expectation that there will be alcohol? <laughs> I don't, we, we had... We have Magnolia hasn't had a, um, a fundraiser in a while, but we had one and we didn't have alcohol. We decided not to have alcohol mm. and people were annoyed <laughs> and, they, and yeah. you know what? They'll, they'll get over it. <laughs> yeah, they will. yeah I, I spoke at a fundraiser for the Graken Center a couple of weeks ago and they went back and forth and did decide to have beer and wine mm-hmm. and you know, there's a little bit of a cultural expectation there, especially at fundraisers where you're asking people to open up their wallets and make right. a contribution. Right. Uh, there's kind of a alcohol culture around there, which is a little ironic when you're raising funds for addiction treatment services. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think, again, they focus a lot on community-based opiate use disorder and medication-assisted treatment. And I think people, you know, the upper middle class around here that would show up to something like that and have a glass of wine probably see a distinction there. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you're not, it's not an event for people struggling with SUD. It's an event to have other people raise funds to support them. You know, and that's how mm-hmm. we always looked at it. But, you know, I think it would be interesting if we could change that. Uh, you know, I did see an interesting uh, article the other day about a woman that was really complaining about the the dating thing and how hard it was for her to come back out and just interact with people without alcohol. You know, like I was saying earlier that, that coming out and how do you socialize with people without bringing alcohol into the equation? Why is it always just assumed? Should we, should we start the sober tender? Should we uh, quit what we're doing? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Make Can a I... million bucks with t- t- Tinder for the sober people. Though there is a filter. I mean, I, I happen to meet my wife on a dating site called howaboutwe.com where uh-huh. you could propose a specific activity mm-hmm. and then people could respond to, you know, they could obviously check your pics and whatever and read your profile, but they could accept your specific activity. And I did have a non-drinking filter on mm-hmm. there, which didn't surprisingly enough, didn't eliminate everyone there. Yeah. There were women I could browse from who had, I don't drink checked on their profile and, not all of them were in recovery, um, but that just kind of made it easier for me where that was off the table. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I accepted her proposal to go salsa dancing, but then we ended up eating ice cream. The, the, great, the great sober replacement for a first date beer, ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does work. It does work. Yes. 
Well, I mean, I've I've done that. I mean, that you you check off the I don't drink, and and to me, I don't drink means one thing. Uh, to somebody else that doesn't have what I have, I don't drink means a totally different thing. Just mm-hmm. Maybe I don't drink alcoholically, or maybe I don't drink all the time, but it doesn't mean yeah. I don't drink. And um, you know, so that's a that's a tough connection. I mean, I actually don't want. You know, I remember a, a Thanksgiving early on in recovery when I came. I came and I showed up. Now, my family likes to, you know, have drinks uh, and, you know, there's a couple of them that maybe smoke some pot or whatever. And, you know, I was proud. This was my first year sober, I believe. And I showed up and kind of, you know, without a lot of discussion in advance, they kind of took it upon themselves to choose that this was going to be a sober Thanksgiving. Wow. And, um, you know, as as appreciative as I was for the... Um, for the gesture, uh, it made for a really awkward and uncomfortable Thanksgiving for me, uh, surprisingly, because I had to watch them all not enjoying themselves or, or not partaking, and uh, it was kind of frustrating. So it was um, it was strange having people uh, make that sacrifice for me without talking to me and uh, mm-hmm. watching them not enjoy their evening. So the same could be said if I went out to have a drink with somebody and they're like, oh, I'm not going to drink because you, you're in recovery. <laughs> that would be weird for me. Yeah. See, but I don't. I don't drink when I'm out with my daughter because I don't really care if I drink or not. And mm-hmm. why I really don't want to have a couple of drinks because two drinks, my face turns red, and um, <laughs> and yeah, and I get really dopey, and then I get tired, and I want to go to sleep. So mm-hmm. I'm not the be- best drinker, anyhow. Right. But I don't drink when I'm with her just because. Why? I, why would I? You know, it's just I don't know. It just doesn't seem important enough to drink. I think I, I think I drank all I needed to drink between the ages of like about 15 and 25 mm-hmm. that now my body said, you know something, we're going to turn you bright red and make you fall asleep after drinking three <laughs> drinks now. <laughs> You're lucky. Uh, no, I am very lucky. I am very lucky because God knows I tried, you know, I tried, yeah. I was a poster child for this. So I mm. did everything, tried everything, did everything to excess. And then I was done. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I don't know many people. I just don't have it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just don't have that. And I come from a whole family that has it. So um, I just, you know, I don't know what the difference is. That off switch. I was just talking to a mom about that where she was saying, oh, my two older boys smoked pot and, you know, my my daughters, it never appealed to us, but my youngest doesn't have that off switch and i'm just like yeah i'm sorry yeah i don't have it either i yeah I with that that's what it kind of feels like you know i don't know i don't know i don't know what it is um so it's interesting that we have both sides so you know maureen you have the the family side of you know your perspective like i don't want to drink or why should i drink or why would i drink you know with my daughter there because she's in recovery and then there's there's our side, or at least my side, which is that you know my recovery process was about making sure that I was okay living in a world where other people could enjoy something I couldn't, you know, mm-hmm. um, that they could use it socially or recreationally, and that it's actually more uncomfortable for me for people to sacrifice that enjoyment just because I'm in the room. It makes me feel like the abnormality. It makes me feel like um, I'm making it uncomfortable for them to enjoy something just because I'm the one that has the issue with it. And, you know, maybe in the beginning, it was really nice of my family to do what they did. And, you know, I think in the beginning, it's a great support. But ultimately, for me, at least, uh, my recovery was about more than just not using. It was about getting comfortable with the fact that other people could and I couldn't. Right? Yeah. I, and did yeah. you you didn't feel like that right away, though? No, um, no, no. I was yeah, definitely. Okay. So she's still in early recovery. You know, I think yeah. she's only almost two years, but I still mm-hmm. consider that early recovery. Yeah. Yep. And every Five family system is different. Recovery. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember a number of instances like this where uh, I kind of got pissed off with people. Like I remember um, the first squash match I played, like a big thing in kind of men's league squash is you go to another club, play a match, and then they'll put out beers or dinner and beers or something. And the first time I went through one of those where I was at like a club like that, where it's a big part of the environment and people were cracking beers and I was like, Oh no, I'll have a seltzer. That, that was tough. That was tough. And I had a similar, similar experience the first time I played around a golf on a, a sunny spring afternoon where there were three other guys kind of drinking a beer on the first tee, getting ready to, 
and go out for a Friday round of golf and me being like, yeah, I'm really not participating in that. Those, those were hard things. Mm. And I, I remember going out to a dinner with my teammates after a squash match once. And one of the guys offered me a beer and I snapped at him. I was just like, man, you know, I don't drink anymore. And mm. it, it really, it really hit a nerve, but you know, with the benefit of time, I realized that I, he's a really nice guy and a good friend and he, people just don't remember. They don't notice. Mm -hmm. And, and that's not their bad. It's, you know, I'm the one with the, with the issue that's abnormal. You know, most people who are offering you a beer after a sporting event are being social and mm -hmm. are going to go home and not screw their life up after that beer. Well, it's just, um, it's what they do and they can't understand yeah. why you can't do it the same way. You know, even with coaching, yeah. like my, my brother, I remember the first couple of years, he's like, so when are you going to be able to have a drink? And I was like, well, well, I don't want, I don't want to have one. <laughs> and he's <laughs> like, well, you know, after a couple of years, then can't you like, you know, do it normally? And I was like, I don't think so. I don't think that's the way it works. And like, even a few years <laughs> into it, he was still coming at me and he's like, so can you drink yet? And, you know, from his perspective, it was just that I was putting it down until I, you know sorted some stuff out and then I could drink. And that, that's his perspective. Um, yeah. I wonder if people in my life have that perspective or like think, well, it's been almost 10 years. Maybe this little phase is over. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I still, I, I don't want to rob others of their enjoyment of a situation. That's for sure. But sometimes I, I do get still frustrated, resentful, whatever. And, social situations where it seems like there's a over predominant focus on drinking or, or substance right. use. I kind of am like, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. Mm -hmm. mm. I just think maybe this is a good opportunity for a lot of people to take a look at how much they drink and how much they rely on that. Because like, even you were saying, you can't people that you feel like you can't go out on a date and get to know somebody. I wonder what, whether you'd like them as much if you both weren't having a drink. You know what I mean? Maybe sitting down having a cup of coffee is a better idea. I just, I really do. I think this gave me an opportunity to step back and think, God, look at everything good, bad, indifferent is, in, there's alcohol involved in it. Mm. So maybe it's a good opportunity to stop that. Well, and I mean, it's also, it would be great if people could look at that. I mean, I've had, I've gone out on quite a few dates with no alcohol, no nothing, just food and talk. And you know, I learn a lot quicker that I do or don't like that person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if, el if alcohol is not involved, like this is you, this is really you, and and we don't have the, alco the alcohol, the alcohol, yeah, we don't have the alcohol cloud between us. It's like, all right, so no, yeah. I get it. I just don't like you, and this is cool. Like we can move on, and you know, there won't be a second date. We don't have to pretend and waste a bunch of money on dinner and stuff like that. It's like, I get it. Coffee dates, the yeah. key to a happy relationship. <laughs> or ice cream. I like that. Yeah. Ice cream, yeah, I like that one. Uh, and I mean, this kind of plays into, you know, Justin, what we were talking about earlier as far as, um, you know, what long-term recovery looks like, too. I know you had a, an opinion and a position on this. I mean, what does it look like for the, for the person in long-term recovery? And, you know, how do they maintain this perspective when the, even, maybe the world around them doesn't even see it like it really is? You know, they, they, they're confused and constantly being a... a asked when they can drink again or smoke a little pot that was that was my favorite one that came up recently like so now that pot's legal can you smoke it and i was like <laughs> no it's it's not that doesn't change anything for me like it could all be legal <laughs> and all available at 7-eleven right next to the twinkies and it still doesn't change my issue with that you know and i, I yeah I, I have an abuse history with that substance a major abuse history right. and um, twinkies wait was, oh the other stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs> It was foundational to my developing a substance use disorder because the thing about pot in my experience was when I was playing JV hockey as a sophomore in high school, I couldn't very well go like pound some gold schlager and then show up to hockey practice, but I could True. do that with pot smoking. So it became something really constant and I, I will never forget that and kind of how that played into me just using a mind altering substance all of the time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that that's very strong in my, my memory, but you know, I, I, as I've grown in my recovery and my circles have grown, 
I, I meet more and more people who, who say they can put down other substances and still smoke pot. Like I just connected with a guy recently through a Facebook group I'm on, uh, who was celebrating having put down alcohol for, I think he was celebrating 10 months and I got to talking to him and I kind of, I kind of thought he might still be smoking weed. And he said, he said that he is, and that it's been really beneficial to him. It helped him socially. He's been able to put down alcohol, which he looked at as a destructive substance for him. Right. Um, but you know, he finds a benefit from marijuana and in his telling anyways. And yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Um, it's t- it's tough. I would say it's tough for me to 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 swallow that just because of my own version of recovery. I, I have a bias, yeah. you know. I look at my version and my version, the one that was handed to me, my abstinence based twelve step recovery yeah. experience was that, um, you know, you can't go backward into that, and that it's uh, you know if you're relying on one or the other that you're not actually getting well, and that that was my experience. So I, that's really the only thing I have to compare. <laughs> Uh, uh, too. And so, you know, it's hard to be open to the suggestion that somebody else maybe has a different version of what I had and they're going to have a different version of recovery and they're okay with that other version. But I chose the one that I wanted, just like they're choosing the one that they want. And it's what's okay for them. And if they ever decide they want what I have, they would have to do their recovery differently. But that they, they're just like they say, there's many paths to recovery. There's many paths to different versions of recovery, I think, is mm-hmm. the, the missing part of that statement, because there's not many paths to the same recovery I have. There's only one that gets you here, but there's many other versions of recovery, and those paths will get you there. Um, and one version of recovery may be somebody that's uh, smoking pot. To Clean with have... the green. What's that? Clean with the green. Clean with the green, yeah. <laughs> the marijuana maintenance program. You know, it's California uh, sober. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of different versions of that. Yeah, and uh, you know, well, I'm not I'm not talking shit about that because yeah. I think it's a a positive step for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent the first couple of years of my recovery trying to convince people that, or not my recovery, of my professional work in the field, trying to convince people to stop smoking weed because right. everyone was still smoking weed, and. I would be like, you're not sober if you're not smoking weed. And I've kind of given up that crusade in my, in, in a lot of my own professional work in, in certain circumstances. I just think there are other things I can do to help people along the path at their pace mm-hmm. rather than kind of be like, this is what you must swallow right now. I can tell people, well, this is my experience and this is how I got well, which is the same as you, Mike. Abstinence-based, I mean, I didn't need anyone to tell me that sobriety didn't include smoking weed. I knew that <laughs> before I knew anything about sobriety. Right. Um, very, very, it's very tricky. And, and to, to tie it into like the long term, you know, with where I'm at today, um, I tell people, like, I, I keep one AA meeting a week, a men's meeting that I really like pretty sacred and I can, I can commit to that. I mean, it's, I cannot commit to going to four or five meetings a week mm-hmm. like I did for the first couple of years of recovery. And sometimes I feel like people inside AA are, uh, are a little quietly judgy of that. Mm-hmm. You know, that like, well, if you really wanted it, you know, you would, um, it, you would tell your daughter when she's saying, stay home for dinner. And nope, I have to go because my recovery comes first. And I don't want to do that. You know, I want to be home for dinner with my young daughter. Like, that's the reason that I got sober. And, um, and yeah, kind of how, how that plays out long term where I want to stay sober. I want to protect my sobriety. I want to live and grow in recovery without, without tying up, without trading sort of family time for, reco- for recovery meetings or, or mm-hmm. something like that. Well, I mean, isn't it, isn't am I clear like, or all over the place? No, no, no. That's an. I mean, that's. I guess it's it's like with anything else. I mean, in the beginning, you have to you have to go at it kind of hard and fast. You know, you have to aggressively chase it and pursue it. You have to make sure that it is a priority because of how easy it is for it to take a back burner to life. So, you know, maybe the first uh, eighteen months to twenty four months, it's like it's a priority. It's got to be your everything. You're creating a new way of life, right? You're learning how to live again. You're learning how to feel again. 
you're learning how to address your your life issues and and the damage that was done while you were using uh, whatever it is that you were using. So in the beginning, hard and fast makes sense. In the beginning, making sure that prior that is a priority over everything else is critical. But to your point, to the long term, I mean, at a certain point, I believe that you probably switch over into the maintenance phase of things, right? How do I mm-hmm. maintain this thing that I worked so hard to get? And I can't imagine that it's chasing it the same way you chased it in the beginning. I mean, if you've if you've adopted the new way of life and you have uh, you are now practicing these skill sets in your day to day routine, it's more about um, bringing the message to the next person, staying mm-hmm. involved in the community, um, you know, being active in your community as maybe an advocate uh, for either the recovery system that got you well or just the recovery system in general, but that's it. I mean, that's, that's where I'm at. I don't go to meetings on a regular basis. You know, I, my, my recovery, um, I think that I've adopted this new way of life as the way things are for me. And it's more about how do I keep it? Do I keep talking about it? Share my experience, strength and hope. That's it. You know, I mean, I I see a lot of people still chasing it after five, 10 years and 20 years uh, chasing the meetings as though they are the recovery. And, my understanding is, is in, in the twelve steps, there's actual re, actually a recovery process, not just going to meetings. And if you do that, you can get a really uh, um, a good version of recovery mm. to help you. So, live. if you're working that twelve step That's by practicing these principles in your affairs and carrying the message to those who still suffer, you're doing it. That is correct. Yeah, yeah. That is the point. You know, I feel like if you're still, I feel like if you're still chasing meetings, maybe five or 10 years into it, that you might want to go back and revisit the process. You know, like if, (laughs) if chasing meetings is the only way you can stay well, maybe there's other things you can do, no matter what support system it is. Meeting makers make it. That's what they say. That's what they say. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of things they say. They have a lot to say. Uh, (laughs) But no matter what, I mean, that's just. They're so vociferous. What's that? They are so vociferous. <laughs> the uh, it doesn't matter which recovery support system it is either. I mean, we're talking about the twelve steps, but whichever one you're chasing, you know, they all have a foundation in like you know, uh, they all have a foundation they are supposed to follow. Like whether it's smart recovery, you know, get the yeah. workbook, do the program. Like, I think I think smart is a little more transparent from the jump about this. This isn't necessarily a fellowship where people should expect to go to meetings forever. I think that's kind of baked into their initial literature. Like they have their four point plan or program that they do. There's some Mm -hmm. written work involved with that. And it's, it's good work. It's kind of CBT based, I I believe. And, and, and they do have some sort of ongoing, more like reunion type of stuff where Mm -hmm. people come together. But I think they do say, you, this isn't to go to five meetings a week for eternity type of thing. Right. Uh, well, I think they all have that. I mean, the the idea of the, the fellowship and the meetings is to get people involved, get you rubbing elbows with people who are doing the right thing, ask them how to do it, have them lead you in the right direction, make friends, feel normal, get well. But not mm-hmm. forever. Like, that's, yeah. that's where you go in the beginning. And, um, you know, across the board, like I said, 12-step, smart recovery, refuge recovery, like whatever peer support system you're engaged in as a part of your long-term recovery. I mean, the most important thing, in my opinion, is giving it back, helping another person. Yeah. So um, now, uh, Maureen, I know that, uh, you know, we like to we like to pose a question to all of mm-hmm. our guests, uh, and I'd love to give you the opportunity to, uh, to present that for Justin so that we can talk about his position and some of the things he might like to do. Yeah, I mean, I think what we usually ask people is what they would do. What's that one thing that you would like to see changed in order to, um, you know, maybe it's about about long-term recovery or maybe it's just about having other things happen in recovery. What's that one thing you think you would um, like to see change? The one thing I would like to see change is for insurance to pay for everything. (laughs) I would like insurance to pay for long-term you know two-year structured continuums of care that contain in some cases six plus months of residential care that's the one thing i would really like to see changed and Mm. maybe a more modest goal it doesn't involve taking on the insurance lobby would be 
I want to say multidisciplinary types of peer recovery centers where, um, you know, like sober coffee shops or sober places that, so, yeah, that there, that there would be more places that offer the community of an AA or NA across different contexts for people to access sober communities like the Phoenix, to your point, um, right. just lots of different avenues for people to get recovery community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of that. Like, uh, Bob, um, uh, Joe, was it Mike, Mike Farello who runs uh, yeah, Boston Bulldog. Man, Mike. Yeah. Great uh, guy. People like that, you know, people like that, organizations like that, just that, you know, just take the alcohol out of some fun things and let people, I don't know. What was it like maybe years ago it was, um, people didn't come to recovery as early as they do now, mm. but there seems mm. to me. So, you know, well, cause it was, it was a lot of yeah, alcohol, right? And alcohol, alcohol kills you slowly. Then. Right. Yeah. Alcohol kills you slowly. So we have um, more people, I think that are young and, um, and are trying to get in recovery and you, you can't be young and that be your thing for the rest of your life, your social yeah. life. Well, while I'd, everybody else is still. I'd love to see the, wise elders of AA who are in their 50s and 60s and have a lot of time under their belt really open their minds to this of like what young people might need might be different than than what they came up with Mm. Uh, yeah I I like that I think you're right and things change and we have to change with them because this is serious business here Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. I mean, I think that, um, you know, if, if we could get insurance companies to, to pick up the tab, that would be great. It's unlikely that they're going to pay for what is actually necessary to solve the problem. So it's going to, it's up to us, you know, um, zero chance. It's going to be all outpatient. Maybe if we say it louder, if we say say it a little bit louder, a variety of types of care, including long-term structured residential blue cross blue shield. Are you listening? Maybe, maybe, but they're definitely not listening to us. Not right now. And, and that's, I guess that's, you know, that's a bigger issue is like getting into, you know, why is it, um, symptom-based care instead of solution-based care? You know, why aren't we actually trying to help people get to the other side of this? Like, you know, would you treat partway through cancer? You know, would you treat partway through an injury? Would you get them halfway through surgery and be like, you know what? You should be all right by now. It's like, you know, the goal is to actually solve the problem except with this particular issue. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's a solution to it somewhere. We probably won't come up with it in this particular podcast, but maybe on another maybe episode. Yeah, maybe on another episode. But mm-hmm. uh, I definitely want to thank you for joining us and, uh, you know, for coming on and, and, and discussing this with us because, you know, it's, it's important. Uh, you know, as a person in recovery mm-hmm. and somebody in this field, um, you know, I really value your opinion and I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you, guys. Maureen, great to meet you and connect with great you, meeting. Mike. You know, I love you. Love you, man. Love your work. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you. You too, um, man. Thank, thank God for uh, four circles. Rest in peace. Where we met <laughs> at that recovery dinner. I know, right? I'm very grateful for that. And all those, I mean, all those connections that we make, it's great. So Yeah, yeah. We're very, very lucky to, I mean, this is work. Right. It's civilized work day. Yes, I love it. <laughs> Talking recovery. It's a real blessing.
All right, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode of Collateral Damage. Uh, as always, if you'd like to find out uh, find out all the different ways that you can listen to our podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.cdpodcast.com. There are many different ways to, to, to listen and subscribe, and we encourage you to choose the one that's most appropriate for you. And as always, I would encourage our listeners to get informed. Stay connected. Thank you for joining us.